Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Packy McCormick. And I first discovered Packy through Twitter, of course. And he writes this incredible newsletter called Not Boring, where he dives deep on different companies and businesses and breaks them down in a not boring way. And this conversation followed that trend. It was not a boring conversation. We talked about Packy's thoughts on becoming a creator, the ways he thinks about his writing process, how his brother, how he and his brother sync up and form almost a mastermind to edit some of his work. Talks about being recognized by some of the people who have inspired him when he was first starting, which was only a year ago or around then. So really a cool conversation. I enjoyed it tremendously. If you have any thoughts or feedback about the conversation, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. Looking forward to hearing from you and looking forward to your thoughts as well. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to pass it along to a friend. And until then, this is my conversation with Packy McCormick. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. I'd love to start with you starting the newsletter. I feel like that's a good place to start. And it started off with you just compiling links together of your favorite things online and your friends saying to you, what's going on with this Packy? Why is he, why is he starting to share these links? So what stopped? Why didn't you stop writing the newsletter, even though you were getting kind of confused faces and confused outlook from your friends? For sure. So yeah, so even before I started the newsletter, I took David Perel's writing course uh, as part of that, signed up for signed up for a newsletter uh, to, to, to make a newsletter on Substack. And didn't know what to write about, right? Like part of the part of the theory behind that course is that you need to find your personal monopoly, like the intersection of a few things that you're particularly well suited to write about. And I'd been I'd worked in finance. I was at a real estate startup for for five years at that point, six years ultimately, and I didn't want to write about real estate. And so I tried like Philly sports. I tried a bunch, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to write about whatever comes to my mind. I think that's a, a normal thing that newsletter writers do in the beginning. They're like, well, I'm, you know, I'm incredibly interesting. So I will be able to put kind of anything out there and it'll, it'll work. And of course, you know, it it worked fine for the first year. I think I grew it from one person to 400 people reading the newsletter, but religiously every week put something out. And so I think there's a little bit of confused faces. At least I still had a full-time job, but a lot of that was in my head, just thinking like, I can't imagine what people are thinking about the fact that I'm going out and writing this newsletter. But it was something that I kind of looked forward to doing. Just the way that I work is, I mean, they're all in on something or out on something. And so I knew that if I missed a week or missed two weeks in a row, God forbid, I'd kind of be done the whole writing thing. And so I just every week got something out. Uh, and then, you know, that that's kind of how I persisted. There was no real magic there. It was just doing the thing every week uh, and and just k- keeping the routine. Yeah, you mentioned you're someone who goes all in or is out. What's something else in your life where you just went all in on it? So, I mean, there are things like 
you know, it, work is an obvious one. It started in investment banking. And then at my last job, like the first year I was at a company called Breather, I was our first US employee. And we had a network of spaces across, I was responsible for New York. So we had a network of spaces across the city that had to be cleaned after every time that somebody used it. We didn't have a cleaning crew on staff. We didn't have a third party partner who was willing to work with us. So we used Uber Eats, uh, or I guess at the time it was Uber Rush. And so they had all these delivery bikers throughout the city. And I was like, all right, what if we tapped into that and had them clean our spaces? So what that meant was seven days a week, Breather was open from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. I would wake up at six, check the schedule, and then all day sit on the phone ordering Uber rushes while doing my full-time job, while whatever else, but like just zero stop. And so that's one where I didn't really have a choice, but other things like, you know, if I'm dieting, then I'll go keto for a while until I break it. Or if I'm working out, then, you know, there was a period where I probably didn't miss a gym day for over a year while I was in banking, because, you know, even on a bad day, I would, the, my gym was like five minutes from my apartment. And so I would jog to the gym, do a pull up and jog home, just like keep the streak alive. So little things like that, where I just know that once I'm out, I'm out, but I, I can trick myself into continuing the the process. Yeah. What are some of the other things that you use to, to keep those habits going other than just doing one? Does anything come to mind? That's a big one, really. Like it, it's, I, you know, I think there's a lot of just typical psychology and I'm a normal human being where like, you know, the streak matters. And if you do things, you know, enough times in a row, then, then that builds up and you don't want to break the streak. So there's a lot of that, but otherwise it's just the way that, that I'm wired. Yeah. Makes sense. So I'd like to then go to May 17th, 2020, which talks about your prediction for what you thought was to come, where you said, when all is said and done, I believe that historians will look back at the coronavirus pandemic as the greatest catalyst for progress and creativity in human history. How do you think that's holding up about a year later? Dude, I think that's holding holding up pretty well, actually. Um so, I, I mean, I think that, that was part of kind of my exploration into this idea of seniors, which is throughout history, there have been these groups of people in particular times and places throughout the world. So, it, you know, the Scottish Enlightenment or looking back at Florence or looking back at the beginning of Silicon Valley, there's just these places where these magical things seem to happen. And so a lot of the thesis was what if you just like unlock that from geography? And so we have no choice but to kind of collaborate online and figure out how to do that. What if you can find all the people who are interested in particular things all over the world? And so I think one, that's been a driver and that's certainly coming true. And most companies, at least startups, are hiring people from around the world to the point where they can't even really go back to the office because they've hired people everywhere. So they'll have teams and offices, but they have to be partially remote. Another piece of it is, I mean, like look at, getting, I just got the first dose of the vaccine, getting that done in a year is insane. But, you know, we had SpaceX doing wild things this year. Feels like deep tech is having this, you know, moment uh, in in the sun in terms of like, people are just celebrating these really hard challenges uh, and people solving them. The crypto renaissance has been, you know, this just like major boon. So there's all these like really weird things and creative things happening to the point that like, nothing seems weird anymore. So I think from that perspective, like it really has been a great year for for progress. Obviously a terrible, terrible, terrible year in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of the things that I realized when I was researching the idea of seniors is that pretty much 
every single time one of these periods happened and one of these groups of people happened, it was coming off the back of some horrible things. So things came out of, you know, World War II or the Black Plague or all these things throughout history where then afterwards people were like, shit, we need to figure out a new way of doing things because that way wasn't working. And so I think a lot of things happened this year, the coronavirus obviously being the biggest one that just spurred people to kind of action and hope and creativity. And it's been this amazing renaissance. So it's weird. Like, you know, the two worlds that I live in are kind of finance and then the startup and, and tech world and things feel bubbly in the markets. But then you look at it and you're like, there's just so much cool stuff happening and people being able to reach these massive, massive markets and audiences with, with new products and, um, you know, new business models. And it just feels like things have changed. And that's the most dangerous thing that you can say in investing and <laughs> all of that. But it really, like, I look at it, I'm like, what's, what's going to happen? We're not going to shop online anymore. Or, you know, like there, there's all these things where it's easy to say like, yeah, things will go back, but I don't know. It feels like things have kind of changed for, for good through, through this. Yeah. And Sahil from Gumroad had a tweet recently that said, it's, is it a bubble or is it a revolution? And how do you, do you think of it like that in the sense of, or do you think that's too far of a, a way no, to frame it? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's either. I mean, I think like that, that fits well into a tweet and I'm sure it had thousands and yeah. thousands of likes <laughs> and more, more likes than any tweet that I've ever put out. But I think everything is, is, a little bit more on a spectrum than totally binary. And so I, you know, obviously there are certain asset prices that are totally inflated. Like I love the idea of NFTs and I'm going to do something and I can't announce why, but doing something there because I I just want to experiment with what it means for kind of the ownership of, of digital IP at the same time. Certainly there are NFT asset prices that are bubbly, but I think like the over, the the long-term trend is still in the direction of just this wild progress. And so it's not a revolution. This stuff's been happening, but it's just been catalyzed by everything that's been, that's been going on. Yeah. I think it's both. When I hear you speak, it's like the internet was a bubble at one point, but it also was a revolution. So it's like both of those things can be true at the same time. And, and it's interesting. I look back and if you had bought just like Apple or Amazon or any one of the companies that have now survived. And obviously there's a bunch of survivorship bias there, but in a portfolio of 10 stocks back then and at the absolute peak of their prices and everything else went to zero, you would have returned the fund just on those companies many, many, many times over. And so like, even in all of these bubbles, there there are some things that are happening and some of it's reflexive, right? Like some of it is, and I've written about this before as well, but if you look at all the speculation around EV SPACs, electric vehicle SPACs. Yes, there's certainly like Nikola is no doubt a fraud and a bubble and all of those things. And it's amazing that something that needs a lot of money, electric vehicles need a lot of money to kind of get off the ground, bring costs down, reach mass market is attracting a ton of money. So there's going to be winners and losers, but just the fact that it's bubbly helps it become reality in the future. Could you explain what a SPAC is? Yo. So a SPAC in the simplest terms is uh, when somebody goes out and raises money in the public markets, just based pretty much on their reputation and maybe a bit of a thesis. Um, and so they have this big pool of money with which they go out and acquire a private company and take it public. And so their arguments, obviously, I think they're pretty substantial arguments in favor of how the process is much, much easier and how you have somebody um, who's a professional negotiating the price and and like 
there's price, if you're the company, price certainty as opposed to going public right now, which, you know, you're probably underpricing by 50%, no matter what you price at. Like there's just a lot of uncertainty. Whereas with the SPAC, you know what price you're going public at, you know, who you have on your team. Maybe these people are going to be long-term shareholders and, and in your corner. There's some downsides too. The economics are totally in the favor of the the SPAC sponsor, the person who puts it together, who gets warrants in the company and all these things it's essentially just give them free money for taking the risk. And so I guess if there's risk, it's not fully free money, but certainly the the economics are weighted in their favor. But I don't know, to me, it's definitely a push towards, you could go with Goldman Sachs because there's a reputation there and the banks are still making a ton of money working on, on SPACs. Or instead of having Goldman lead left running the deal, you have Chamath or you have, you know, Altimeter Capital or you have any one of these people at varying degrees. And I'm not going to take a stance on the reputability of, of anybody involved, but there's some legitimately great funds and investors out there launching SPACs. And I would trust them to kind of take a, a company public. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's, definitely something that we're going to have continuing to go forward. I think that, you know, there's obviously like anything else pluses and minuses. And I think it's a reaction to the fact that public and private, again, is this binary thing that should probably be a little bit more of a spectrum. And if if reporting were easier, would be a little bit more of a spectrum. And so SPACs are somewhere trying to, I think, fix the gap between one day I'm a private company and nobody can buy my share. And then the next day I'm a public company. There's been an allocation allotted to all the people who are friends with the bank and clients of the bank and all of that. And then the public just gets it wherever they get it. And so it's people wanting to take risk earlier on to maybe get the upside that normally people who get IPO allocations would, would get. Do you think, I don't know anything about SPACs, but do you think it's a a result of people trusting people more than bigger corporations. Is that part of what's going on? A hundred percent. I think that's, that's part of what's going on. And I don't know if it's necessarily a people versus corporations thing, like that there's necessarily a diminishing trust in institutions. And that's why it's happening. But I do think that there is an increased trust just based on the fact that people are a lot more visible and you can talk to Jamath on Twitter and you can, you know, right. people are just out there in the conversation. So they're essentially building these relationships at scale where there's definitely more trust in the individual than there was before. Whether or not there's less trust in institutions, that's probably also true, but I think maybe plays less of a role in the SPAC phenomenon. Gotcha. And I mean, I bring that up because one thing not boring's done so well, it feels like is generate a level of trust with the people who are reading the stuff. How do you, how have you thought about doing that? And how has trust played such an important role in building your following email list to 40,000 people now? Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the, I think, number one thing that I care about with the newsletter is, is keeping people's trust because there are a ton of things to read out there and I want not boring to be funny and entertaining and teach people stuff. But I think the most important thing is trust because I'm out there talking about companies, private companies, public, I have sponsors that are paying me money to write about them. And so if I don't have people's trust and people don't believe that one, I'm only picking sponsors that I care about and two writing honestly about them, not only does kind of the list fall apart, the business model falls apart, it, it all falls apart. And so that to me has been kind of this like accidental thing. I don't want to say from day one, like I need to have the trust of my readers because like I said, it was like my mom and dad who trust me anyway and like a couple other people <laughs> reading it. But as it evolved, like that's been the one thing that I, I just wanted to 
be as fully honest and open with people as humanly possible. So every newsletter, I talked about how many subscribers there were to the newsletter. Now it feels like it may be a little bit more like bragging. Whereas before it was like six new people signed up to the newsletter this week. Like, but I was doing it the whole time. Cause I just think like one, it's fun to keep everybody involved in the process too. I hope that it lets people just see behind the scenes. And then three, I hope that other people can see that like, look, I spent a year building this thing to 400. Like maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but in case it does, I want there to be a record that like, I'm just an idiot at that time in a small apartment now in a basement writing a newsletter. And so like, it's definitely possible that you can go do that thing that you want to do too. Yeah. And one of the things that you've started to do is you start to have companies pay you to do basically profiles of your stuff. So how is that, when you think about trust, how has that played a role in your process? That's been the riskiest and maybe most rewarding piece of you know, there's different, there's different pieces of it that are rewarding, but certainly the riskiest piece of Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. Cause for those who don't read the newsletter, which I'm assuming is a lot of you, what happens is I have a bunch of companies who I was writing about before private companies, uh, you know, on Mondays I write about big public companies and I don't really have any inside access or information there. Same information that everybody else has but I'm also really, really interested in startups. And so I'd start writing about smaller companies or started to do some investment memos on companies um, where I'd write up a a, a private company and let the Not Boring Syndicate invest in the deal uh, with me, which has been really, really fun. And then companies see the investment memos and say, we're not raising money right now, but we'd love for you to do something similar to, you know, on our company. And so we tested it a couple of times and one, it really worked well for the companies. I had two sponsors in the past couple of weeks come to me and say like, dude, I have to tell you, like, I feel like we took advantage of you a little bit on on this, which is a good sign, which is what I want because I want to build this thing sustainably. Um, But, you know, I think I've been able hopefully to keep trust on those by, one, being super upfront and honest about the fact that I'm getting paid. I'd say how I'm getting paid. So whether they're just paying me upfront or whether I'm getting you know, a CPA deal where I, I make money every time uh, the company acquires a customer through the newsletter. So very honest about that. I wrote out a Google Doc. It's like two pages long that I linked in most of the piece that I'm writing that says, here's how I picked the companies. Here's my process of writing, here's what I will and won't say. Like nobody could ever pay me to just dump on their competitors or anything like that. But I think it works well because I don't really write negative stuff anyway. I wrote one kind of bearish piece on uh, a company called bill.com and they've put it, they've blown up in my face because you just shouldn't short anything in, in this market <laughs> in 2021, um, <laughs> in 2021. But um I mean, like typically I have a hard time seeing the downside. So actually that's something that I'm, as I'm writing more and more of these deep dives, just saying upfront to the companies, like, look, I do want to start like really even more than I would in a non-sponsored piece, highlighting what the downsides might be or what a competitor might do well. So I'll continue to do more and more. And that's just become part of my screening process um, is if a company's, if a company wants a puff piece, then No, you cut out. Is like, you cut out. Oh, sorry. So yeah, I'm just saying you said if, a puff it, piece, and that's yeah, where so, it cut out. <laughs> sorry. Oh, so yeah. So sorry. if if that's become part of my process, that if a company wants me to just write a puff piece and not look at any of the things that might be challenging for the company or any of the good things that their competitors are doing, then that's kind of becoming part of my process now. That upfront, I'm just telling people here's what it costs. Here's blah, blah, blah. And also I really want to do a section in the piece that says like, 
here's what might go wrong for this company and here's what their competitors do well and all of that. So I need to keep evolving that product to make it even stricter and tighter than it would be on a piece that I'm not getting paid for. And then lastly, I probably, for every one piece that I write, turn down at least five or six pieces and maybe more. There's a bunch of people who like, this is more popular than just regular sponsorships, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes before I actually end up writing a piece. And I'm only writing pieces on companies that I would invest in and kind of be proud to to talk about anyway. So a lot of the screening happens ahead of time. So for the four or five that you're saying no to, what are some of the reasons why you're saying no? Mostly like some of them are just like, they feel scammy or whatever. And I can just tell that I'm part of some like big paid acquisition thing that they're doing to build up their scam. So that's probably two of the five or one of the five. The rest of them are, there is a competitor in the space that I think is better. And so mm-hmm. if, if that's the case, then I'm just not going to write about the company because I, I want to be able to say, I think this is the best company doing what this company does. Um, there are some cases where it's not clear. And so I could very well write a piece where I'm not sure if it's the best, but I'll say, here's what this one does well. And here's what this one doesn't do well. And then there are some that are really interesting or really good companies maybe, but not that interesting. Uh, and so that's, I think a, another kind of filter for me is like, I, I have to spend a bunch of time writing this. Like those pieces take between talking to people at the company, talking to people outside of the company, writing it up, they take at least 20 hours to write. And so I don't want to spend all that time writing something one, just personally and selfishly that I'm not interested in, but then two, that when I hit send, nobody who's reading it is going to be interested in the company or a few people will be interested in the company. Like nobody wins there. So those are kind of my reasons for saying no. Yeah, you mentioned 20 hours for a single piece and you mentioned that you're working 60 hours a week. And so what what is that 20 hours com- comprised of exactly? Yeah, and sometimes it can be more for a, a Monday piece that can be up to, I think I've sent like an eight or 9,000 word one. Like it's a lot of research. Uh, it's a bunch of, and it's different for the Monday. The Monday, because they're public companies, it's less talking to people in the companies and it's more just listening to every podcast that the founders have been on and reading every Substack that's been written about them and trying to find Wall Street analyst reports and just like doing all of the work that I can on the company. And then, you know, there's a bunch of hours spent fucking around in in Figma, just trying to like make, <laughs> make images for the pieces and all of that. And then there's the actual writing and rewriting and having my brother edit it and going back and redoing the piece. Sometimes it's just copy edits. And sometimes it's like, this just doesn't work. Like you either need to restructure it or start over or whatever. So there's a lot of it that actually is the writing piece for the deep dives in particular. And similar with the investment memos, there's a lot of just like talking to the people on the team, talking to the founder, talking to the people who are involved in product and engineering, talking potentially to the marketing team and just figuring out kind of what that company's story is. And now more and more going out and kind of like red teaming myself and talking to people who might have invested in a competitor and asking why you know they like the competitor over this company. So really trying to get the 360 view of what's going on and certainly something that I can do a better job of. Like I said, that's not my natural instinct. So going forward, that's going to be more and more a part of the process. How do you deal with your brother getting, you're giving him feedback. How do you think of like, he gives you feedback. How do you tell him like, no, this is right. Or you're right. How do you maintain that level of, of confidence in yourself or figuring out which way to go? We're pretty similar. Um, and I th- say he is a better bullshit detector than I do. And so like, <laughs> I trust him at this point, we've done this, you know, 50 plus times together. Um, and so he, and this is, this is 
why I don't have, you know, an outside editor or pay someone to edit it, even though maybe they'll do like a more professional job on the wordsmithing or something. He's just really good at being like, this makes no sense or, you know, (laughs) delete that word or, you know, you're blowing this company a little bit too much or like all those things are what he's really good at doing. And I I trust him. Like I, I look at what he's talking about and I'm like, you're right. Sometimes he does try to correct me on grammar and he's wrong. So I just ignore the comment. But for the most part, I'd say I take 90% of the comments that he that he gives. Yeah, because feedback is such an interesting thing in that we almost assume that it's correct out the gate. Like we have this thing with feedback where we assume it's correct. So then it, it makes it hard to be like, well, no, actually. And finding that line is, is often hard, I feel like. That is 100% right. Particularly because I've typically feel like when I send a first draft that it's total garbage. And so I'm expecting the whole thing to get, you know, art and, and all of that. Um, but I don't know, he's, he's gotten, I think the two of us together have gotten really good at figuring out like what actually does need to be reworked and what's, what's good. Yeah, that makes sense. So in the past 12 months, I believe you went from writing a Ben Thompson compilation piece to then having Ben Thompson recognize your work as just another guy with the Substack, And so how does that feel? The whole thing feels surreal, frankly, like, and not in any crazy way. Like, but I think all of it is stuff that if you had told me a year ago, it was happening, I would have like taken the day off and celebrated and gone out and whatever, like any, any one of the things that kind of happens on a day-to-day basis now. And now it's just kind of like, that's, amazing and that's so cool and i'll like talk my wife's ear off about it and whatever else like the ben thompson stuff because not only did he mention me as the guy who writes another newsletter or whatever that that one time but then also i think i made it onto a couple other did i became like a meme a little bit on the podcast (laughs) like a couple episodes it's like that that's absolutely crazy stuff but then i'm like oh shit i have a piece to tomorrow like i gotta (laughs) writing again so there really hasn't been any time where i'm even little things like you know person X liked my tweet that mm. a year ago, I would have been like, all right, we're going out. Now it's kind of like, that's awesome. And then I have to go back to, to writing. And so like, I think part of the challenge on this is like, you know, two weeks ago or like last Monday, I wrote a piece with a friend of mine on Excel that I think has like 180,000 views. It's the most popular thing that, that I've ever published. I can't fully say written cause we did it together, but like that is wild. And then this week, I wrote a piece that I really liked on Spotify and Epidemic Sound and it did what two weeks ago would have been like, great. And now it's like, it's not 180,000 likes. So I mean, <laughs> part, part of the challenge is figuring out that balance of, of being hard on myself and trying to c- keep raising the bar, but also taking a step back and trying to appreciate and be thankful for kind of the stuff that, that's happening that has started to just feel normal. Yeah, it's a hedonic treadmill. Like people talk about it with money, but it's it's that way with with likes and attention on on social media as well, right? Totally. And it, the cool thing about the hedonic treadmill is that it goes both ways, mm. right? Like I, th- I think had you told people in February of last year you're going to be stuck in your apartment for the next six months, people would be like, "That's it, I'm dead." Like it's <laughs> going to be the worst thing in the world. And then people adapt and people find ways to enjoy that and to appreciate, you know. The, the little things there. And so mm-hmm. I, there's obviously countless studies on this that people who uh, win the lottery end up being just as happy two years later as people who became paralyzed. And so like the human is just like incredibly adaptable and, and 
it's amazing when you can adapt to bad situations and you just need to be, I think, aware of it when you can adapt all the time to really good situations, whether that's likes and whatever else or money or, or anything else. What are some of the little moments that you've really appreciated over the past 12 months? I know you had a, a, you had a child, so that, that's a big moment, but what about the little moments? I mean, the child is interesting because it, it just creates so many other cool little mm-hmm. moments. Like yeah. He just started saying mama and I'm one so cool that he's able to say mama now. On the other hand, I wish that he was saying data. Also, he's been saying mama <laughs> for like a few days. It's, I think it's time to diversify a little bit. Um, but just like little things like that or getting him to laugh and like all of that kind of stuff is amazing. But even just like slowing down and not having to go out all the time before Not Boring was a newsletter. It was supposed to be this kind of in-person social club kind of thing. And so in kind of figuring out what that was going to be and, and starting to kind of work with people to figure out what events would be a part of that and what program would be a part of it. I was going out most nights and not like crazy going out like I would have it when I was 23, but like going out and doing something and being up until 11 and having a couple of drinks and all of that kind of stuff. And just being able to pause and be like, cool, not, not doing anything tonight. And I'm totally happy with it is, was kind of nice. I mean, I think, you know, I, having started in investment banking, I think like from the outside, things like that look really, really hard. Cause it's like, Oh man, you have to miss going out to dinner with your friends or all these special moments or blah, blah, blah. But if you just shut off in your brain that that's even a possibility, then like mm-hmm. anytime something good happens, or you're able to leave work at like eight and go to dinner or anything like that. It just seems like a win versus each one of those things that you can't do feeling like a loss because you just kind of get used to something. So I guess it's the adaptability again, but a lot of little moments like that during, during coronavirus. What's it like, excuse me, what's it like being a, a father while working online and, and being able to basically set your own schedule? It's, I mean, that part has been, like, I can't imagine doing all of this on the parenting side a year ago or two years ago when I had to go into an office every day. Like I can't imagine leaving every morning and being like, all right, but I'll see it. Uh, you'd probably be asleep by the time I get home and maybe I'll catch it tomorrow. Like that is impossible to me. Whereas now I can run upstairs at any point in the day and hang out with him or we were just in Miami for a month. And so it wasn't even upstairs. We had a small apartment. So it was like right there. And whenever I was like feeling stuck, instead of just kind of sitting there and scrolling Twitter, I'd, which I still did way too much and do way too much, but could just like jump over the couch and hang out with him, which is like so unbelievably cool. And same with, same with my wife working from home. Like the fact it's, it's hard to imagine parenting when both parents don't just get to be with the kid. Mm. Yeah. It's really, it's crazy how coronavirus quarantine has put all that in perspective in such a way. Um, So kind of switching gears here, I want to talk about you know, how crazy it is that your words impact the market, or at least it seems that way. Like, how does that feel to you? I don't think they impact the market. I like, you know, there's definitely <laughs> been moments. There's definitely been moments where I've been like, all right, like that's, that's wild. I just wrote about this company. I do think part of my writing process is thinking about like, what is, what feels like it's bubbling up in my little corner of the internet that like might pop off. Uh, and so then, you know, I wrote about NFTs before NFTs like really exploded, but that's just cause I, you know, hang out with the weirdos and amazing people who are like really deep in that stuff. And so I'm just like a little bit attuned to it and then can write about it before it becomes big. Um, 
the market's a really big thing. I can't imagine that it pops, but I, I would say like on the other side of it, there are definitely people who read and it's not investment advice. I am not you know, professional, like all of that kind of stuff. But there are people who say like, I bought Slack because of you, or I bought Twitter because of you, or I bought, I've shorted bill.com because of you. So a good and bad, you know, people are acting on the things that, that I write and that's scary, right? Like that is, mm. it's cool, I guess, in a sense that like people actually take it seriously. So from that perspective, it's, it's interesting, but it's also scary that like, I don't know anything that other people don't know. And there's plenty of people who know way more than I do, but I have an audience now. So there's an extra level of responsibility. And I think that's why I'm focusing more, you know, this year on figuring out what the downside could look like as well and all of that, because there's certainly responsibility. And if I just go out and use this newsletter mailing list to pump bullshit stocks, and that's not good for anybody. And the SEC will probably be like knocking on my door. So it's really just about like, you know, most, even when I'm super bullish on a company, it's not like you guys need to go out and buy this stock right now. It's, this is a really interesting story that I think people aren't fully appreciating right now. And so here's like, here's how you can start to develop an appreciation and an understanding of what this company does. It sounds like to me that you have an optimistic, you lean optimistic when looking and analyzing at these companies. Why do you think that is? I mean, that would probably take years of therapy to unpack exactly why that is. But I think I've been lucky, right? Like I grew up upper middle class and got to go to good schools and, you know, things have not like, luckily my family has been healthy. Like nothing's gone horribly wrong. And when things have seemed like they're going bad, they, it works out. And I'm incredibly lucky from that perspective, but I haven't had anything like really smack me in the face. And when things have kind of smacked me in the face, like I've written about before, you know, I sold all of my Bitcoin and then rolled into like in 2013 and rolled into a bunch of Apple calls that went to zero and lost like a ton of money. Like this is stuff that, that like could definitely, but I am lucky enough to have like a safety net there where I think really early on when I decided to leave finance and go to a startup, even in the first place, I was like, my worst case scenario is that I go move to my parents' house, which is nice. And I get, I have food and I can like sustain myself and I'm not going to die from any of this. And so I think there is just a little bit of, you know, uh, uh, privilege. I, I, it's like, you know, you have to acknowledge it, I think, when it happens. And my worldview is certainly informed by the fact that things have typically worked out so far. But at the same time, though, there are people who come from that background who are not optimistic. Totally. Right? So, so there's something there. Like, yes, it sounds like you've had a good in life in the sense of, of like a loving family and just like people supporting you. But there's still something there where you are looking optimistic at things. I, I just wonder if there's something more. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what it, I mean, my parents, my mom is a hundred percent an optimist. My dad is definitely my dad, my sister and my brother are probably more like each other and that they can look at both sides of, of things and they can call out bullshit way better than I can. I, I don't know. I've just always been this way and it, I now kind of want to unpack it a little bit more and figure out why that is, but it's, Certainly, and I am lucky again here, the right time to be writing about tech companies optimistically. So I've gotten lucky on a lot of that too. <laughs> Fair enough. And I appreciate the self-awareness of it. Um, I want to talk about um, your, you know, you said you had a great tweet that was 
Clubhouse is the first big social network on which companies structurally can't participate as companies. And when I read this, it, it was like, oh my God, that's right. And it speaks to something we were talking about earlier where, you know, with people trusting people more than they're trusting big corporations. So how did you come up with this tweet? And wh- what was what was the thought process here? There was no zero thought process. I was embarrassed <laughs> to send that tweet because it sounded like I was high. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but like it sounded like a high, qu- a high kid tweet. It was like, oh, but I was just thinking about it. I was like, that's super interesting with, with voice. And obviously there's millions of ways. I'm sure brands, if, if Clubhouse becomes the next Facebook, then brands will certainly figure out how to develop their own voice. And, you know, there are avatars like Lil Mikhail that have massive followings who are not real people and all of that. So like, that's scary. Certainly hackable. The number one kind of quote tweet and retweet on all of that was like, yet. And everyone, <laughs> everyone replying thought they were clever, but everybody I said, yet. Did it. Um, and so like, I think that shows like a little bit of maybe distrust that, that people have. But all I meant by that was like, it is interesting that I don't know who is tweeting from Wendy's Twitter account. I know that mm-hmm. it's fire and all of that, but like it could be a team of interns working around the clock. In Clubhouse, it's a person live with their voice. Obviously, same with with Spaces. With Audio Chat, it's someone live with their voice, and it's just something where like structurally a company doesn't have a voice box. So like that's all I meant mm-hmm. by it, and it it blew up a little more than I thought. Ben Thompson talked about that one on the on the podcast too, which is great. Um, but that's really all I meant about meant by it, and I think that that you know it does speak to your point for sure. But it's interesting that audio hadn't taken off before video because it is like a lower, lower fidelity, seemingly easier thing to do. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That, that was that was it. Have you written anything on deepfakes yet? I have not written anything on deepfakes yet. What's um, your perspective on it? Like any technology, it has pretty interesting implications and pretty scary implications. And it all depends on how people use like the Tom Cruise one is the one that, that took off where you're like, you cannot tell if that's Tom Cruise or not. And they've done it with Obama, certainly on voice. It's easy to deep fake voices alone, but now with voice and video, you can do it pretty easily. So that could obviously have huge national security implications. If you can fake the, the president saying that we're going to nuke, North Korea, that could set off something horrible. And like, certainly that will happen. And I'm sure it has happened, but people at least have gotten good enough at understanding at this point what's real and what's not. But that is scary. There are a lot of cans, uh, can of worms that have been opened or, you know, Pandora, Pandora's boxes that have been opened that we have to figure out how to deal with it. I don't have any idea. (laughs) I wonder if blockchain technology, and this is coming from someone who doesn't know anything, but blockchain technology plays some role in in verifying that this is the person who sent that. Does that sound accurate as someone deeper in the space? Yeah. I mean, like it definitely sounds a little Bitcoin fixes this. Um, What does that mean? I don't know. There's whenever something goes wrong or a bank gets hacked or whatever, the Bitcoin maximalists are like, Bitcoin fixes this. And it's become <laughs> a joke and a meme. But certainly there's something there. Like, I think that's the interesting thing about NFTs is that they verify ownership. That's the interesting thing about blockchains generally is that they can verify transactions without trust or anything like that. And so certainly that will probably play a role. 
I think we're years away from that just being the accepted standard for, you know, like once the president starts verifying everything on the blockchain, that feels years away, just given how quickly the government moves. And me, who's like deeper in the space, I tried to buy, you know, a, a coin the other day and could not figure out how to do it. It just like the transaction just kept failing. So it's still like so far from being easy enough that it can be a pervasive thing that just verifies everything. But maybe in the future, by the time, you know, it, deepfakes are pervasive enough that we really, really need it. Maybe that is a potential solution. What were you trying to buy? If you don't mind me asking. This is so dumb. So I have, <laughs> I have a friend named Brett who is one of my smartest cleverest, most creative friends. He was the, uh, the, one of the first, he was the first employee, one of the first people at Drizzly and like really helped figure out how to make the law work such that you could deliver alcohol. And so like, just like that kind of like smart and creative mind mixed together. Um, and he's just like, he's been ahead of the, the GameStop thing. He told me to write about it a week before it blew up. And wow. like, just like all, he's like, he just lives on Reddit. And so you can look really, really smart if you live deep enough in the, in the internet. And he told me, this is from StockTwits, I think was pumping it. He was like, you should buy this thing called Hogecoin. It's like Dogecoin, but even more of a joke because it's a derivative of Dogecoin. And so I was like, yeah, all right, fine. I'll put like $100 in Hogecoin and like see if it becomes, if it pops in a ridiculous way and set up a Coinbase wallet on top of my Coinbase account and tried to move ETH over and buy it. And the transaction just wouldn't go through. <laughs> That's the story in a nutshell. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, man. It's crazy because there's so much out there. And, and how do you figure out what's, and especially in a market like this, how do you figure out what's real and what's legit, what's fake rather? Like so much out there and, and everything's popping, everything's going off. So I know. What's, where do you find that bullshit detector? I mean, some of it, I don't know. I'm probably, I've probably written too optimistically about something that will proven out, be proven to be like just vaporware or not live up at least to the the huge expectations that I have for it. And typically I'll, I'll avoid, like I haven't written a piece on like why you should buy particular shitcoin X because I have zero faith in my ability to to understand what what altcoins are going to pop and what, what altcoins aren't. And so mostly I avoid it by, you know, writing about public companies, which at least have like, you know, audited financial statements um, and then private companies where everybody knows this is early stage and risky and here's what I think might be able to happen. But typically try to avoid writing about things that I don't think that in a week I can fully understand. I, I love writing about things that I don't understand. So I wrote about, you know, APIs or when I was writing about NFTs, there are things that I'm like familiar with, but don't deeply understand. And I love being able to explore just like the kind of the, the, technology itself and the business models around it and, and all of that. But I'm not going to say, and by the way, because I kind of understand what NFTs are, like you should go out and buy that piece of digital art in particular, because it's going to pop. Like I have no idea. And even when I write about a public company, I'm like I really no idea if this is going to do anything, if it's going to tank in the next year, I think over the next five years, this company is going to be bigger than it is today, but I have no idea in the short term. And right now there's so much to like really go out and have a view on any particular NFT or coin, feel like you kind of need to believe a little bit in the short term. There are mm. exceptions to that rule for sure. And I, that's just not where I'm good. When you're writing a piece, I know Tim Urban says something really interesting was like, I'm trying to take my knowledge from like a, a one or two out of 10 to a six out of 10 and then just explain it. 
Is that kind of how you view it? I think I have to do a mix. Tim Urban takes a long time to write pieces and he writes pieces that are 50 times more complicated and harder than, than what I'm writing. Uh, so he has a different, a different process, but I tried to do a mix where like, you know, this week I wrote about Spotify and Epidemic Sound and I interviewed at Epidemic Sound. I've written about Spotify before. I use the product every day. So like I'll do familiar things occasionally. And then occasionally I'll just be inspired to go and be like, I don't know anything about Tencent, but it seems like a fascinating company or I don't know anything about the metaverse, which came from looking into Tencent. And so I'm going to write about the metaverse. And so those pieces take just like drain my brain, but are really, really interesting. I don't think I could do one of those every week, but try to keep like maybe two of those a month pieces of like, I, I'm at a one or two and I need to get a lot smarter. Have you ever devoted a lot of your time to a particular topic and then been like, I just can't write about this. I don't understand it. Um, not, I, I've certainly, you know, spent Thursday and Friday writing something and then Saturday morning woke up and been like, this is going to be garbage. Like it's less, I don't think that I can understand it. The great thing about the internet generally is that like, there's nothing where I've had to just go and read the original white paper and be like, all right, let me try to figure this out. There's so much good content out there explaining things that I think that anybody with enough kind of time when I have that now, because it's what I do for a living, can at least get like kind of smart on it. So it's not like, I don't think I'll ever be able to understand this. It's more like I'll get there and I'll be like, damn, this like is just not interesting. Or like, mm-hmm. I thought this company was interesting, but I don't know what the angle on this thing is. Like this thing about writing about DraftKings. And I was like, yes, like sports betting is going to be big and it's interesting to see whether a personality led company like Penn or DraftKings is going to be worth more, but it's already at $50 billion. And so maybe that price is in some of the future stuff. And like, what am I going to write that nobody's written before? And so that happened last week where then I had a tweet on Saturday morning, like, what should I write about? Um, and, and ended up not taking, I, I took one suggestion that said fantasy M&A, which is where I just do fantasy M&A, um, but didn't, didn't take anything from there because I think the ideas are best when it's something that I'm actually interested in. But yeah, that, that happens a bunch where I'll do a day or two of work on something and be like, there's just nothing that interesting here. What's the most underrated part about having people follow you on the internet? That is a really good question. You can learn about, like, I could learn about anything from people who know a ton about it. And I think that's really amazing. Like, that's kind of why I wanted to write in the first place at a much smaller scale is that by putting out what you're interested in, you can attract people who are interested in that thing. And so with a bigger following, there's just more, you know, incentive for people to talk to me and contribute and all of that kind of stuff where, you know, when I wanted to write about NFTs in the metaverse. I just said like, Hey, what should I be reading? And who should I talk to? And people are like, Oh, you have to talk to this person, this person, this person. And so that is so cool. And I don't think that's limited to having a big following, but I think it's just limited to like being very clearly curious and willing to learn and, and all of those types of things. Um, but that, I mean, Twitter is just amazing from that perspective where, you know, we met because of Twitter or you just meet all these really smart, passionate people who know way more about their particular thing than you could ever know, but who are super generous about wanting to share their, their knowledge. Who are some of your favorite creators? Some of the people you follow who you're just like, how does this person do what they do? I know we mentioned Ben Thompson earlier, but. 
Who else? I mean, Ben Thompson's like the canonical example there. Uh, Mario Gabriel is a friend of mine, and I think like he just did uh, his first NFT, which I thought was so cool. Um, but what I love about what he does is just that he's always experimenting with new things and bringing people together. And he's 10 times better at that idea of like, how can I find the smartest people on it, something and bring them together and, and organize them in a way that the output is really, really good. Cause it's easy to bring people together. It's hard to then like channel their energy into something good, I think. And he's, he's very talented at that. Another person whose output I just think is absurd is Bern Hobart um, who writes the diff and he'll just write things that like, are so insightful and smart about a wide range of topics. And he does it every day. Like even Ben Thompson has his kind of canon that he falls back on. And so a lot of his pieces end up being like half self-referential and saying, like, when I wrote about this, like here's a new development on top of that. And here's how I change, change how I think about it. Burn is just like all over the place. And I think like if I tried for the next thousand years to do what he does, I couldn't, his brain is just able to store and organize information, I think in a better way than, than mine can. So that's really interesting. I mean, less from like the opposite end of the spectrum would be someone like Julie Young, who I follow on Twitter, who is like way more selective in what she puts out. And so she'll have like five companies that she really likes. She'll tweet about them occasionally. If they report earnings, she'll do threads on them occasionally she'll do a really deep dive into a company, but she's very selective about one, the number of companies that she's willing to cover, the number of topics that she wants to cover publicly, and then how much and how she covers those things. And so I think that's a totally different approach that I also really respect. And then there's, I don't know, there's a million people that I follow and really respect, but those are the ones that come to mind. For someone new who's just starting out, would you recommend someone put out a lot of stuff or take more of a quality approach, how would you advise someone who's just beginning their journey of creating online? I mean, I'm not going to have a satisfying answer here. I think a little bit of it is like what feels right. And so if you get energy from putting a bunch of stuff out there and seeing what works and you're able to then like kind of follow those paths and, and go deeper on things or just continue to put out a bunch of stuff, that's certainly one way of doing it. And another is, if you just get really fascinated by a topic and you want to spend months figuring out how you can write like this seminal thing on that topic, then that's a, an amazing approach too. And people have succeeded going both ways. I think it's really about not to sound too woo, woo but like really about following your energy. Cause if you want to do this for a while, like you need to keep your, you need to do stuff that, that gives you energy and that you can keep doing. Cause I think that consistency whether it's every three months I'm going to put out a total banger or every day I'm going to put out something, that consistency is really, really important. Yeah, it, it is a tough question because it's it's dependent completely on the person. But transitioning now to the future of Not Boring, you've talked before about having a sports talk-like radio show for business. Talk to me about that and what the vision is. Yeah, so I don't know if I'll end up doing that. I think I had that vision before Clubhouse and uh, and Spaces really took off. And so right now I'm just experimenting on Spaces uh, in a couple of different ways. The idea for that was there's Sports Talk Radio where people get on, there's experts who come on, there's just diehard fans who no, have no idea what they're talking about. And they just get on and they yell at each other and like kind of just talk about the the day's events. And I think that's really a fun format that hadn't been like, 
really well replicated for business, even though I think more and more and more people have those same feelings towards the products that they use and the businesses behind them and the leaders of those companies. Obviously, Tesla is like the canonical example there, but it's happening more and more at every stage, public and private. And so the idea for that was, what if you just like, I don't know, got up and you had a couple of hosts, but then people called in and said like, I don't know. I thought what Shopify did today was stupid. And then you like (laughs) debated that. I'm from Philly originally. So like sports talk radio is a big part of the culture there. But I think Spaces is this really fun outlet to do something very similar. So uh, tonight I'm hosting an idea dinner, which is like a riff on the hedge fund idea dinner with uh, Mario and the guys from uh, the Acquired podcast, where we just kind of each pick one public and one private company, have some drinks and talk about why we why we like them. Uh, I hosted something with Austin Reef last Friday, um, where for a couple of hours, we just kind of talked, we started talking about Twitter and then just people came on stage and contributed and all of that. So a lot of what I wanted to do with a structured podcast and I was thinking about how you'd handle call-ins and all of that can kind of just naturally happen in spaces now. And so I think Austin and I are going to lean into continuing to do that as well. But I, I just love the idea of, and I think that's what Not Boring hopefully is too, is more casual conversations around these things that are becoming more important, but have seemed almost like unapproachable before, like looking at a balance sheet is a miserable experience if you don't know what you're looking for. And so saying like, all right, cool. There's all those numbers there, but like, here's the number that matters for this company. And so like, here's how you should think about this. And if they do this, this, and this, then that number is probably going to go up. And if they don't, then it's probably going to go down. And just simplifying the whole thing and making it more approachable is kind of the unofficial, unintentional mission of not boring. And so want to carry that into to spaces and see what happens there too. So you have Twitter spaces and you have Clubhouse. The classic question is, and right now is what's going to win? What's your your take on it for someone who does this for a living, yeah. basically? As you can tell, I am bullish on spaces or at least making the bet on spaces. But I think it really, I think they'll both do well. For me, spaces is a no-brainer because I spent so much time on Twitter anyway. And of all the social platforms, that's the one where Not Boring has really grown and where you know, most of the people who read Not Boring interact with me and all of that is all on Twitter. So being able to just look up in the feed and see that, you know, I have a purple circle around me and I'm talking about something, I think just is really nice and convenient. And I love the fact that they're just continuing now. All of a sudden they woke up and they have a, a fast product cadence. And so I just think making a bet on Twitter right now, there's going to be a lot more tools uh, available to me. And so I'm going there. I think people who have big followings on Twitter will probably continue to go there. I think the beautiful thing about Clubhouse is Eugene Way wrote this post, Status as a Service, um, probably a year and a half ago now, about how hard it is to build followings on new platforms. And, and it's so much smarter than the way that I'm ever going to describe it. It's an excellent like kind of canonical post on starting a new social network. And he wrote this really before there was this COVID-induced uh, renaissance of social products, but just saying like, it's really, really hard to go onto Twitter with one follower today when people have already been there and build up a following, unless you're a celebrity who wasn't on Twitter before. And now you're coming and you're bringing your existing audience in. And I think he was saying that TikTok was great because algorithmically it did that. And I think clubhouse has been great because it's let people with maybe a good Twitter following, maybe not, just by being there and using the platform and hosting things and participating in conversations, build up million person followings really, really quickly. I think the question comes down to what value can you extract from having a million followers on Clubhouse versus, you know, is a million followers on Clubhouse worth 
a thousand followers on Twitter, a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. Like what's that kind of conversion rate between the mm. two? And I think that's what the, that's what it's going to come down to. Plus like, you know, I, I don't mean to make everything dollars and cents. Like some people just really like clubhouse and they've been there and it's a vibe and like they've, they've made friends there. And so people are going to stick around and have those conversations there. But for me, because my vibe is on Twitter and my friends are on Twitter, I'm going to go with spaces. Yeah. So speaking on that of like, what's a follower worth on each platform? Rank it for me, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Clubhouse. Am I missing a TikTok? Rank those five and what's one follower worth in each of those platforms? I'm going to give another uh, equivocating answer here, which is it really depends on what you're going for, right? Uh, I mean, like on Twitter, if you want to put out a newsletter or if you're in finance and you want to get your ideas out there, or you know, if you're in any one of the niches that do really, really well on Twitter... A Twitter follower is worth a ton as long as you're not like buying them, as long as like this is an engaged thing that you've built organically. I think that's super valuable. So to me, a follower on Twitter will be more valuable than a follower anywhere else. If you're a model, a follower on Instagram is certainly worth a lot more. If you're a dancer, then probably TikTok. And so I think it, that, all, that all really depends. A great political answer from Packy. <laughs> Packy, do you have any final parting words for the people before we wrap this baby up? Oh man, that is a tough question. Final parting words. I don't know, I'm gonna continue to be corny. Like it, all of this, all of this comes down to just finding something that you, uh, that you might be good at and really, really like doing. And I think that's been the cool thing. Like, you know, the creator economy might, may or may not be overhyped or passion economy or whatever else. But I think that's been the cool kind of change over the past year even is that it's becoming more and more possible for people to make livings doing the things that they really enjoy doing. I've certainly been a beneficiary of that and I feel super grateful for it. Um, but yeah, if, if there are things that would have been weird for you to do professionally even three years ago, there's a chance that you could actually do it now. So it's at least worth starting to kind of do something on the side and seeing if, if there's something there. Packy, thank you so much for your time. I couldn't agree more. And this has been a true pleasure. Where can people find more Packy in their life if they want it? They can find me on Twitter, of course, at PackyM or notboring.co. Simple, easy. I'm a subscriber. I love it. Everyone go check this man's stuff out and appreciate you, Packy. Appreciate you. This was fun. That was my conversation with Packy McCormick. If you enjoyed it or have any thoughts or feedback about the conversation, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda is the best place to do so. Also, if you made it this far, I have so much love in my heart for you. Thank you for making it until the final seconds. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to pass it along to someone who you think will enjoy it as well. That's all for me. I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace.